Buddhist geeks. Seriously Buddhist, seriously geeky. Episode 111, Japanese Shingon, the True Word School. Hokai Sabal, a teacher in the Japanese Shingon tradition, joins us to discuss this uniquely Japanese form of Vajrayana Buddhism, both its history and its teachings. This is part one of a two-part series. Buddhist Geeks is supported largely by the generosity of our listeners. If you like what we're doing, please consider making a one-time or a small recurring donation by visiting buddhadharma20.com slash donate. Buddhist Geeks, we have a very special original gangsta Buddhist Geeks, the OG in the house today, <laughs> Hokai Sobal. He's been on the show actually once before, but that was kind of in a group conversation we had, including Daniel Ingram. But he's in Boulder, all the way from Croatia today. And uh, we've been friends since before Buddhist Geeks actually started. So he's been here the whole time. He's been a, like a special family member who's been following us the entire time. Yeah. Hokai's like our daddy. Your daddy, Hokai. <laughs> Do you like being our daddy, Hokai? Sure, guys. <laughs> You're so nice. I can, I can adopt you. you know? well, that's good. We can move to Croatia and be a Buddhist Geeks family. Yeah, sure. Good. So we're going to actually get into Hokai's background a little bit more because uh, he has quite a, a unique and interesting background. Plus, we've always felt very in line with his approach to his practice and, and we have similar views on things. So it'll be fun to talk with him. And uh, your background is in the Shingong tradition, which is a Japanese Vajrayana style. I know this is really simplifying it, but that's kind of the, the general gist if anybody's not familiar. Yeah, it is. Yeah. I've been roaming through Buddhist traditions. Right. And, and you're not a, a single tradition guy. You like to, you like to mix it up a little bit, right? Yeah, sure. Fortunately, uh, we, we have access to old traditions today in the West, more or less. And we have a general discourse in Buddhist circles, which allow us to cross tradition boundaries nice. and lineage boundaries and to create a very balanced awareness of what's the essential Buddhism. Cool. And your teacher is Tanaka? Uh, Jomyo Tanaka, yeah. He's, an, uh, he's a Japanese gentleman, Acharya in the Shingon lineage. And he's resident in Japan, but he spent a lot of his younger days in the United States. And he has a group of students, mostly private students. He considers them private students in, mm. both, in both States and uh, Europe. Cool. And you're a, you're, and you're a teacher in training. Yeah, I'm a teacher in training and uh, sort of uh, his senior student. And I've been uh, leading my own group in uh, Croatia and offering introduction and mid-level uh, Shingon practices for about last uh, 10 years. Cool. Yeah. Yeah. So part of what we wanted to talk to you today about is the, what Shingon is and your experience mm -hmm. with that. And uh, we have some other juicy, geeky topics to get into as well. And my homie Vince is here, of course. Yeah, I'm here just appreciating the physical presence of Hokai because usually we talk over the phone or over the blog a lot. So it's, it's nice to see him in person and be talking here in the studio. It's really cool. Thank it's you. Not, Thank you. I, I'm, I'm delighted to be here. It's quite a different feel to have your sultry, sexy Eastern European voice on here. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, so I'm probably not unlike most Western Buddhists in that I don't know much about Shinkan. So I'm thinking that it probably would be good to have you talk a little bit about what the Shingon tradition is, both in terms of its history 
and then probably also in terms of its view and its practices. Uh, and I was wondering if you could give us like a little overview of the Shingon tradition from both of those perspectives. Yeah, we'll have to keep it simple due to yeah. the time given, right? Sure. But Shingon originates in uh, 6th century India, a little bit earlier than the first Tibetan transmission, and therefore also a little bit simpler, if we can say so. A little mm. bit less less branched, a little bit less based on dozens of tantras, and basically based on two great uh, sutras, esoteric sutras. And in the transition from the 7th to 9th century, basically in, in a matter of like two generations, it was transmitted through China to Japan, after which it virtually disappeared in China due to a loss of direct connection with Indian uh, esoteric masters. And as we know later in history, China adopted a lot of Tibetan influence. Then in, even in some cases, it developed some like hybrids of what was left from the uh, Shingon esoteric legacy and mixed that with, in China, they called it Chen Yen, that which is called Shingon in Japanese. So basically in China, we cannot find a pure expression of this tradition, even though it passed through China. In Japan, it was introduced and reformulated and uh, sort of completed as a full-blown lineage and tradition by Master Kukai, later known as uh, Kobo Daishi. And that was in the beginning of 9th century. Can I backtrack a little and ask what those two sutras were that you mentioned? I was yeah, wondering okay. which yeah. those were. Yeah, those two, those two sutras were uh, Mahavairochana Sutra and Vajrashekara Sutra. And are these completely unique to the Shingon tradition? Well, the texts themselves, as far as I know, are are preserved in the Tibetan collection, but are not studied, uh, okay. especially. There is a like a liminal study of or a peripheral study of Vajrashekara, but not so much of Mahavairochana. Okay, cool. So basically, the subject of these two texts is rather straightforward. Mahavairochana Sutra introduces the idea of a cosmic Buddha, a trans-historical Buddha, so that the Shingon tradition holds that the source of this tradition and the source of his teachings and practices is not so much the historical Shakyamuni Buddha, but instead the so-called Dharmakaya Mahavairochana. Mm -hmm. This is similar to the uh, Tibetan idea of the Adi Buddha or, yeah. or the Samantabhadra right, right. as the source of some teachings, right? So the Vajrashekara Sutra, on the other hand, is a teaching of uh, meditation, basically. So it's not so much teaching of doctrine, but a teaching of direct meditational practices which lead to the awakening, realization, recognition, and attainment or permanent realization, as we might say, of Buddhahood in this mm -hmm. life with this and through this body. Mm. Okay, so from the early 9th century onwards, the Shingon tradition was transmitted in Japan through a lineage from master to disciple, basically in a direct lineage, kept quite secret or hidden from the general public, though rituals were developed to serve the public and even to serve the uh, emperor's court and to serve the political and social and cultural needs of the time. And a very subtle and sophisticated uh, tradition of rituals and additional supplemental practices was developed there. I should say that perhaps the art forms developed at that time, in the medieval time, 
connected to the Shingon traditions are simply unsurpassed in terms of their delicacy mm. and uh, sophistication and the power to realistically transmit certain uh, very powerful typical tantric uh, ideas. Are these like paintings or These are these are both paintings and especially sculptures and also ways of singing uh, using the voice in a very special way and which is directly connected to the meaning of the word shingon because shingon is a Japanese way to pronounce the Chinese characters chenyan and chenyan was used as a as a uh, rendering of the word mantra so chenyan or shingon basically means a true word so it's a true word school and mantra is one of the three basic components of all shingon practices as we know even tibetan buddhism mm -hmm. in a certain period of its history used the the expression mantrayana the the vehicle of mantras uh, while in shingon buddhism and a similar expression is used mantranaya which means a path of mantras but mantras are only one-third of the means used in, in, in Shingon active meditation. The other two being uh, mudra, which are gestures or positions of hands and the entire body, but also encompassing the immediate environment, the ritualistic environment. And the third component is mandala, which generally refers not only to paintings, but also to visualizations used, which may be either static or dynamic uh, to complement the more external parts of practice, such as mantra and mudra. So th this would be like an, like a very short overview. Yeah. I may be jumping ahead a little bit, but I wonder if you could talk a little bit more about, you know, you said uh, that, for example, the paintings yeah. were some of the best that you know that, of yeah, if, yeah. for actually transmitting or being a part of yeah. practice in a really tangible way. I wonder if you could say more about how that works. I mean, I've actually noticed and for myself, you know, because I practice in the Vajrayana for Tibetan tradition, but I haven't actually been able to describe it myself of why I find it effective to use mudras or to use the voice or to use paintings. And so also it's mixed up in this whole thing, which you were mentioning about like all these cultural things, especially in Tibet. And so it gets hard to pull out what's, what's working there, what's right, good right, about it. And right. so I wonder if you maybe just talk about it yeah, a little. Yeah. Yeah. The very basic idea in, in, in Shingon, and I believe this is also present in Tibetan Buddhism to a, to, a, to a felt extent, is that there is an original enlightenment. Basically that there is a wakefulness that is present in its entirety even before we start to practice. And in a way, the, the wish to practice and the desire for awakening is an expression of that prior uh, wakefulness that, that, that simply searches to, to express itself and to, to make itself present in the world and in life as we live it. So there is a sort of pressure from inside, mm. uh, which in the beginning may feel quite uncomfortable or even painful. So this is the first basic idea, that everything has an inherent wakeful aspect to it, whether as a subject or as an object, right? So there is no, there is no fundamental division there. Another basic idea is that the mind and body are never fundamentally divided or separate. Okay, So mind and body are not a dualistic uh, aspect of our existence, but a polar, a polar aspect. Basically, mind cannot exist without the body. And I'm not talking just a physical body here, of course, because different 
different levels of mind depend on different levels of body or bodies. We may say that in plural. But also that means that, that the sense consciousnesses, such as sight or hearing or touch or taste or smell, are not fundamentally different from the mental consciousness as, as, as ways or pathways or doorways to entering a sacred world and to recognizing the fundamental indivisibility of everything that arises moment to moment. So basically, that's where the pictures come in. Yeah? That's where the art aspect comes in. Kukai specifically believed that pictures and sculptures and the whole range of visual art is an extremely powerful medium of transmitting or impressing upon the mind of a non-practitioner uh, the inner truth of Buddhism. Okay, so basically, uh, visual art, or as an extension, even you know, music, or we may talk today of, of multimedia art as well, may be an extremely effective way of uh, offering certain very, very profound, very profound insights of the Buddhist practice which then may serve as a sort of encouragement for people to start their own modest practice, to make little steps in the beginning. But this, this doesn't mean that they should be left without a possibility to, to participate in what we would call the Vajra world or the world of wisdom, the world of, you know, like ultimate compassion, the world of beauty and elegance and truth and, and harmony and, and the world of uh, unexpressed possibilities and potentials and so forth. So basically, when we put it that way, we can, we can easily see why art bridges some obstacles or gaps in our awareness or our understanding, whether we are practitioners or just normal, plain human beings, you know, feeling that there's more to life than what's presented by the, by the ordinary interpretation of the sense data. Mm. Yeah? Thanks. Does that sound meaningful? No, that was, that was perfect. I mean, it just dawned on me that I've been wanting to have this sort of discussion in a very, you know, in the Tibetan tradition, a lot of things are assumed even in describing it. You know, someone might say about a mantra, if you say this mantra, you know, you'll attain enlightenment or you'll accrue these things. They don't really get to the... Well, that's a little bit simplified. I know, it's oversimplified. Yeah, and that's like magic. You're right. Yeah. Yes. And to combine some very specific descriptions of, for example, about the sense consciousness mm -hmm. and why does this matter in terms of how does this play into using visualization or mantras? It's just, a uh, that made a lot of sense to me in my well, experience. We, we, we can riff on the mantra a little bit. Yeah. Yeah. Sure. Yeah. For example, this is still in the West after 30 years, a pretty uh, mysterious thing or a mysterious means yeah. used to, used to uh, generate some contemplative states of mind yeah. yeah or in other words mantra is very often not always but of course but very often used without necessary initial understanding of how it works yeah and we as westerners should always uh insist on knowing something about how something works mm -hmm. be before using it it's i i believe this is our our biggest contribution of the Western civilization to the, to the human family. Basically the approach of critical and cautious, though curious mm. mindfulness 
when we approach something new, mm-hmm. okay? We want to know something about it before we actually apply it. It's not a distrust, but historically we have learned that gullibility or credulity is probably not the best way to go about life. Yeah. And especially about power, be it a mundane or spiritual. Yeah. Mm-hmm. If something is powerful, we should be careful. Yeah. And the best way to be careful is to learn something about it before we actually use it. Yeah. Uh, the next step would be, of course, to experiment and see if there is really something to it. Now, mantra can be and should be understood in three distinct ways. Uh, these three ways are always present with each uh, specific example of mantra, though in some cases one of them prevails. And in some cases, one of these three ways is barely present. Okay, The first and the most simple way to approach mantra is an aesthetic way. Basically, there is a music to the sound mm. of your voice. Yeah, Your voice is beautiful to begin with. Now, most of us don't think like that of our voices. <laughs> I don't. You, you agree? Yeah, <laughs> certainly. I love your voice, Vince. Yeah, thanks. <laughs> but your voice is not perhaps melodious or <laughs> like uh, heavenly music in that uh, literal sense. <laughs> but your voice is a human voice. And as a human voice, without any special effort, your voice can express beautiful things. And in that dimension, your voice no matter what what the pitch is or the color or the tone or the uh, texture, your voice is beautiful because your voice can express the truth and your voice can actually awaken others even in cases when you yourself are not sure what you're saying. Mm. This is beautiful. This is like music. And I don't think other sentient beings possess such a powerful voice. Mm -hmm. At least the sentient beings we Westerners know of okay mm-hmm. <laughs> and now the second dimension after this aesthetic or we can say artistic dimension is the dimension of concept each mantra has a conceptual uh, map a little conceptual guide to its different meanings it has been said that mantra has a super abundance a semantic super abundance meaning that Uh, one mantra of maybe six syllables uh, can generate a variety of meanings. And then from this variety of meanings, we can extrapolate a variety of secondary meanings, creating like a, a rosetta, like a, a, like a huge a thousand petaled lotus of meanings, like a mandala of its own. Yeah. So this conceptual meaning is very important because like in the Catholic or generally Christian tradition of sacred reading. Yeah. Yeah. Like Lectio Divina. Lectio Divina. Yeah. Mm-hmm. There is an entry point where we actually are uh, invited to understand what the mantra is saying and then use that as a, as a starting platform into developing a strong concentration on its sound, whereby we gradually forget the meaning but turn to the third aspect of the mantra, which is the energy of the sound. Okay. So now we have, uh, we have the aesthetic dimension, we have the conceptual dimension, or, or the meaning of the syllables, which may be symbolic meaning, 
which may be literal meaning and which may be metaphor. And then in the end, we have the energy of the sound. The energy of the sound is the point whereby we enter the Vipassana aspect of contemplating a mantra, where we have to be, develop a very precise attention, a very fast observation of arising and passing away of each consonant and each syllable and each vowel, okay? And whereby we begin to observe the vibratory nature of the act of speech itself, which is a dimension of speech often unobserved or left out by the normal, ordinary uh, perception. Okay, now these three, these three dimensions work in synergy. Okay? And this is not the only order in which we can approach them. Sometimes we can practice a mantra in a more, especially at the mid-level of practice, we can practice the mantra directly at the energetic level without being introduced to the conceptual meaning and then being introduced to the conceptual meaning after the vibratory nature has been penetrated. So there is a game with these, with these means. We can take an example to, just to round up this, this, sure. this explanation. For example, we can take the, the mantra Om Ah Hum, which is a very basic seed mantra composed of three uh, seed syllables. It's common to both the Shingon Japanese uh, esoteric tradition and to most, if not all, Tibetan traditions uh, that use this mantra. And it's also present in Indian forms, uh, preserved in certain traditions of Vedic or Kashmiri tantrism. So basically, these three syllables may be presented in a variety of ways. One of them is to signify body, speech, and mind. The other is to signify the existence the non-arising and the realization. Okay, This other is a deeper meaning. So the first meaning is body, speech, and mind. What does that mean? That means that in the act of speech, not only speech is present, but body is present, as well as the mind. There is no speech without the body, and there is no speech without the mind. That opens the mantra to become a means of integrating body, speech, and mind on a moment-to-moment -moment basis, basically developing an extremely powerful state of concentration using a relatively accessible object, which is an act of speech. Okay, So this is a basic conceptual introduction whereby people can start using this mantra in a rational way as a starting point. Okay, It doesn't have to remain rational, it doesn't have to be interpreted in an exclusively rational manners and in a rational framework. But I believe that the rational starting point is extremely useful. Then the deeper meaning of existence, non-arising and realization can be penetrated in the way of observing the sound OM to symbolically represent the existence of anything at that moment. Okay, The sound A may be interpreted of symbolically representing the non-arising. In Sanskrit, it was the word Adhyanutpada, the original non-arising. And basically, the, the letter A represents this, this, this very uh, fundamental concept, Adhyanutpada, the original non-arising, basically meaning that things appear, but they don't uh, absolutely or 
unquestionably arise. All right? So their appearance is very real, but their conditioned nature is just as real. Okay? That's what original non-arising means. And the realization in the end is none other than the realization that the existence and the non-arising of everything is one and the same thing. So basically, Om is the state in which we find ourselves no matter what we do, yeah? whether we recognize it or not. A is like an instrument of penetrating that existence, okay? of questioning, of questioning whether the existence is real or unreal. The Buddhist answer, of course, is none uh, or either, of uh, neither none nor either, <laughs> okay, at the different levels of complexity. But this is not a doctrinal, you know, a dissertation here. So, <laughs> so we're just talking about a very simple way to use this mantra. And then whom is used as an anchor of pointing out that the realization is not somewhere in the future, but that the realization is here and now as you pronounce these sounds and as you penetrate the dependent and conditioned and originally non-arisen nature of everything existing, you are becoming a realized person. In other words, you are observing the true nature of things now. That's what makes the mantra extremely powerful. Join us for the fourth annual Buddhist Geeks Conference, hosted in partnership with Mindful Cyborgs and Shambhala Sun from October 16th through the 19th in beautiful Boulder, Colorado. This year's conference will be exploring the convergence of Buddhism with modern culture and technology through informative keynote presentations, idea-packed TED-style talks, self-organizing community dialogues, and contemplative workshops and practice periods. This year's list of presenters includes the world's most quantified man, Chris Dancy, abbot of the village Zendo in New York City, Roshi Pat Enkyo O'Hara, and pragmatic Dharma provocateur, Daniel Ingram, as well as many others. For more information and to register, visit BuddhistGeeks.com conference. After nearly a year in private beta, the Buddhist Geeks Network is now open for any independent practitioners who want to engage in interdependent practice. You can find out more about the Buddhist Geeks Network by visiting BuddhistGeeks.network. And if you'd like to join the community and join us in regular social meditation practice or other events that we host there in the network, all freely offered, you're very welcome to do so, again, by visiting BuddhistGeeks.network. Love to see you there.